Well, as I mentioned in the opening prayer, we're going through the book of Galatians this week, next week, and the following week. So if you were here last week, you would have heard me say that, and hopefully you've read Galatians 1 and 2. Uh, over the course of these next couple of weeks, I'm not going to read every single word from every single chapter, just because that takes a little while to do. But, you, you, so like this morning, you're going to see me kind of skipping over the greeting. Not that there's not good scriptural truth in the greeting. I'm just going to where the Holy Spirit is directing me as I'm reading through the chapters of what does the, the Holy Spirit want me to pull out of this particular message for our congregation, this past uh, uh, pathway through the book of Galatians. I want to set it up, though, so you kind of understand what's going on this. There's a lot of rich, good theology that is in this book, and so I want you to understand where it's coming from. You, if you've been here for any length of time, you know I always say that context the scripture is key. One of the biggest things that causes issues in theology today is people that are picking the verses that they like. I like this one, I like that one, I don't like that one, so I'm not going to read that one. I'm not going to read those four chapters, but these chapters are nice. We want to understand what's going on, why it's going on, so that we're able to properly understand it and make sense of it. So this letter was written from Paul to the church in Galatia with some deep passion and frustration for the church. Typically in scripture, if you get a letter from one of the apostles, it's because something, you might have some things going good but you also have some things that are going bad that need correcting. And so this is what's happening here with Paul writing to Galatia, is that there are some issues that are going on. One of the things that you need to understand about this time period is that Christianity was birthed from the Jewish faith. If you've heard even today the, the idea of a Messianic Jew, what's a Messianic Jew? It's a Jewish individual that accepts Jesus Christ as Messiah. So they wouldn't necessarily throw themselves under the category of Christian because culturally they're Jewish, but they designate and recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They're in the family of God. They've accepted Jesus. They're going to heaven because they've done everything that John 3.16 tells them that they need to do. They just get classified as a Messianic Jew. Now, here's the, the difference that we see even to this day is that the Jewish people as a whole looked at Jesus and they said, you might be a prophet, but you're not Messiah. They were expecting a political Messiah to come on the scene and to be able to start changing things. And Jesus didn't meet who they thought Jesus was supposed to be. And because of this, they rejected Jesus as that Messiah. Uh, those that believed in Jesus began going into this other move, this other direction. And you have the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, which originated from the same place, but they began splitting. And that's where you see so much of the issue being today. Now, here's one of the things you need to, to realize, too, is in this time period, you had to go to the high priest who would be at the, the tabernacle, and you would go into the, the holy place, and then the high priest would go once a year into the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. There was that big veil that we've talked about before that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, and that when Jesus died on the cross, that uh, curtain, which was a very, very thick curtain, tore down in the middle. The presence of God rested on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, but when Jesus dies, that curtain comes down, that veil is torn, and the presence of God comes out. So up until this point, if you want to be made right with God, if you want freedom, the, the pathway to get there is by going to the high priest, and the high priest forgives you of your sins. That's why when today you look at churches that still kind of have that operating process where you have to go to uh, the pastor, you have to go to the priest in order to be freed from your sins, it actually follows the Old Testament model because you have to go to someone who has it more together, that someone that is holier than you are in order to be made right. 
but that goes against the very nature of the New Testament because when Jesus dies, we don't need a priest to make us right anymore. We don't need a pastor to make us right because we have the presence of God. The, the presence of God leaves the Holy of Holies so that the presence of God can reside within you. That is the power of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so now here becomes the, the debate that's going on. The Jewish believers who are going all the way back to the law, they're going all the way back to Moses, all of that going on, they're okay with these Gentiles becoming believers. Like, come on into the team. But the problem is, is they want these new believers to go ahead and believe what they believe. They want them to go ahead and follow all the laws that we've ever had to do. And they're missing the point. Because Jesus came to fulfill the laws. We've talked about this before. There's three different types of laws in the Old Testament. There's ceremonial, there's cultural, and there's moral laws. The ceremonial laws were fulfilled by Jesus. That's why we don't have to sacrifice animals today. Jesus, in Passover, becomes the perfect lamb who is sacrificed, who comes back to life again. He was fully God, fully man, and died on our behalf. So we don't need to sacrifice a, a lamb anymore, hoping, well, this is going to make us okay until next time, because Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. So we can do away with the ceremonial laws simply because Jesus fulfilled those. But then you have cultural laws and you have moral laws. And even to this day, this is one of those areas that we struggle with, even within the church, explaining this to other people. We see this in our culture, pointing and saying, well, there's issues here that we shouldn't have to do this or do that, mainly because we can't properly articulate these three different types of laws. Sacrificing a lamb to be made right with God, that's a ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled it. We don't have to do it anymore. We have cultural laws. I'm going to give you an example. This, if I told you that none of the Israelites ever stopped at a red light when they were supposed to, what would your reaction be? Duh, they didn't have red lights. They didn't have cars. They didn't need to have that law because it didn't make any sense for them. Now, when we start looking at some of their cultural laws, when we see, well, if you have this sickness, you have to go outside of the camp for X amount of days, and then you have to come back to the priest to be made holy and, and be made right and be identified as clean again. Why do we not need to do that? They didn't have these really cool things called modern medicine, doctors, and hospital rooms, and that when you have a really bad uh, bug or virus, that you, the, the doctors and the nurses can treat you with hazmat suits to protect themselves from you. So they had them leave so that they wouldn't infect the entire grouping that are all moving through the desert together at the exact same time with no permanent structures. When you look at the Old Testament law and you say uh, a hand, you cut off the hand of somebody who steals, why? Because you have one million plus people that are moving through the desert waiting to get into the promised land and they don't have any jails. That's why we don't cut off people's hands for stealing today. We have a little bit more of a realistic pattern of doing that. And so when we look at it, you have the Jewish believers that are saying, you have to follow our laws. You have Paul, who is basically coming along them and saying, you don't have to do any of this because they're bringing you a different gospel. This is not what Jesus did. Jesus came to set us free of the ceremonial, that the cultural, you don't have to join our culture because you're not a part of what our culture was. This would be like me saying, hey, we want to go and tell another continent about Jesus. Be that Asia, be that Africa, be that Australia. But you have to do the exact same worship that we do here in America. 
That doesn't make any sense. Their culture has different instruments. That if you, my background is music education, that I can look at it and say Asian music sounds fundamentally different culturally from American music. I can worship Jesus with Asian music. I can worship Jesus with African music. I can worship Jesus with any type of music. Like some of my favorite worship experiences have been in other countries when they're singing other languages, playing with different instruments. Because it's unique. When we get to heaven, there's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every instrument. It's going to be amazing. So the best worship you're ever going to experience is going to be in heaven because everything is just going to be this perfect melting pot of everything coming together. We don't have to separate and say, well, you can't do your culture and you can't do your culture anymore. It's saying you need to just follow the moral laws. Accept Jesus, follow the moral laws. A good example of a moral law, when we look at the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. How many, let's just do a quick poll, just because I need to know this. How many of you think murder is bad? Pastor Frank, murder is bad. I saw that hand not go up. I'm scared now. Here's the thing that I need us to realize, though. Like, that seems like a foregone conclusion. But when we look at our world today, and when we look at Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus says that in the time when I come back again, it's going to be like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, what's happening in the days of Noah? They're calling good, bad, and bad good. You start looking and seeing all of this chaos going on. What it should do is remind us of the fact that means Jesus' is coming is coming quicker. It means that we realize that the people that we're upset with for not following the law of God, they don't know God. And instead of getting upset with them for not knowing the, the word of God and knowing the law of God and having freedom in Christ, what do we need to do? We need to tell them about that. We need to speak the truth and we need to speak it in love. We need to not complain, wag our fingers, or do anything. We need to say, you need to know Jesus. And you may not look perfect and you not, may not match all the right styles and all these different things you still need to come into the kingdom of God. You need to come into the family of God, and we'll make room for you. But know this, when God says, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is evil, we need to still follow those things. The moral law never went away. And so one of the things that we start debating today is we start saying, well, what is the moral law? The things that I want to do that are wrong, that's actually cultural. And we start trying to explain away cultural things when in reality, there are certain things that we just know if it was wrong before the law came into place, let's just keep using murder as an example, Cain and Abel. Murder was wrong before the law. Murder was wrong in the law. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Murder is still wrong after the law. That's a pretty good estimate that we shouldn't be murdering people. So when you look at Scripture and you look at any particular sin and you see it's wrong before the law comes into place, you see that it's wrong in the law, and you see that it's wrong after the law, it doesn't matter what it is. You may say, but they're a really good person. No, none of us are really good people. If we are good people, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. And I don't know about you, I need Jesus. About 10 of you need Jesus too. Thank you for... Uh, so today, we're, as we dive into this in the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about this idea of experiencing freedom through, through Christ. And today's emphasis is Paul is trying to explain to them, to the church in Galatia, that you have embraced a different gospel. But before we go any further, would you repeat after me, Heavenly Father, your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp onto my feet, and a light onto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple 
and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 24. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, or for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, as I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had me set apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into, away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and as I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So there's two different ideas that I want to pull out of chapter one. And the first one is this, receive no other gospel. Church, I want you to hear this from me. This is the reason why I so desperately want you in small groups. This is why I so desperately want you reading the Word of God for yourself. Not just on a Sunday morning for me, but on your own. Because I want you to grow in understanding the gospel so that when someone else comes in and says, well, this is what the Bible says, that you can stand there confidently and refute the fact that, no, that's not what the Bible says. You can try and make it say that. But just because you try and make it say it doesn't mean that that's what it really says. You can look at me in my face over and over again and tell me, well, 2 plus 2 equals 5. No, it doesn't. I learned in kindergarten and first grade that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And I counted it on my fingers, and I feel confident in that. I don't care how confident or what your, your method is. If you know what the Word of God says, that someone is not going to bring a false gospel to you, and you're going to believe it. And there's too many people that are believing things that Scripture never says. What's the gospel? What's the good news? Is that Jesus sent his son as a baby to become fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, was an amazing teacher, shared everything that we need to know, died the death that we should have died, went to the cross, died, was resurrected, ascended again, and if we believe in him, we'll go to heaven when he returns. That's a pretty good news. And unfortunately, we so often try and complicate it by saying, well, I'm going to do this for the kingdom, and I'm going to do that for the kingdom. We should be doing works. Service is a good thing. Serving the kingdom of God, helping the kingdom of God to grow 
is a good thing. But there is no amount of money, no amount of time, no amount of anything that you could do that could earn salvation because salvation is a free gift. So if someone ever comes to you and says, well, you have to do this in order to get the, uh, the gospel, in order to have Jesus come into your life, that's a false statement. Now, here's the thing you need to realize is that when you truly accept Jesus into your life, you have died to yourself, especially when we go through the process of water baptism. Your old self goes down in that tank, and when you come back up, you are born again. You are a new creation in Christ. You look different. You act different. Your priorities are different. And when that's the case, all of a sudden, I want to be reflecting Jesus, not myself. My old self has died, but I am raised back to life in Christ. He transforms me, and so in that process of sanctification that we talked about in our last series, that I'm being progressively made holy. I'm instantly made right with God, that if something were to happen to me, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm spending my eternity. But every single day, I should be looking more and more and more like Jesus. And the problem is this, especially in the American church as a whole, we want to have assurance of where we're going for eternity, but we want Jesus to look more and more like us instead of looking more and more like Jesus. Like, chew on that one for a moment. We want, well, I don't want to make any changes. I want to live the way that I want to live. Where does that say anywhere in Scripture? Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It doesn't say you're going to have this perfect life where everything goes great and no one's ever going to get sick and you're never going to have any temptations. Jesus was tempted in any way, in every way possible, but it was proven to be perfect, to be proven to be sinless. So as we look more like Jesus, that means that there's elements of your life that you've got to give up. Now, you don't give it up so you can go to heaven. You give it up because that's what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And one of the most amazing things is this. The Holy Spirit speaks to each and every one of us at a different pace on what we can handle and in the order that the Holy Spirit needs to speak to us. You might have had issues in your past where, well, that was really easy to let go of. Like, that sin, not a problem whatsoever. Like, typically, I would say that I'm pretty decent at not lying. The reason why I say it is I have no poker face whatsoever. If I try lying to you, you're going to know because I'm going to start, like, feeling horrible immediately. I'm going to start smirking. Like, I can't lie. And so for me, that's not a problem. But some of you are like, oh, I, I love lying. I, I love lying just to see if I can get away with it. And, and you think about it because you're laughing because you know it's true. But those, those moments where you're like, I'm struggling with this addiction. I don't know how to break this addiction. For someone else, that's not a problem. The Holy Spirit works on all of us in different paces. But here's the thing. If someone is in Christ, they're a new creation. They're being progressively made holy. We don't need to say, well, if you don't give up this now, you're going to hell. What gospel are you preaching? That's not the one in, in the Bible. The one in the Bible says that you believe in Christ that you're going to go to heaven. That's John 3.16. But it's a progressive journey in which we look more and more and more like Christ. If anyone starts saying, well, you can give your life to Jesus, but these sins that you like, they're really not sins. They're really not that big of a deal. The church has been making a big deal about it that actually if you really look at Exodus chapter 4 and when it said this, it's really referring to, if you have to really sit back and twist scripture, then you really have to ask yourself the question, what's my motive here? Is my motive to live the life that God wants me to live or is my motive to live how I want to live and just go to the destination at the end of the day that I want to? Because when we look at Jesus, I'm pretty confident that he laid down each and everything that he ever wanted so that we could be made right with God. You read that story when he's in the garden. He says to God, 
I know this is what I'm supposed to do, but if there is any other way for this to happen, please let it go that way. Jesus knew he was going to the cross. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen, and he still said, hey, I'm willing to do it, God. But if there's another way, let that other way happen. But he knew what he needed to do. Here's the thing is, anyone brings you a gospel that says, you're perfect just the way you are, that is a lie from the pit of hell. You're not perfect the way you are. You're being made perfect because you are in Christ. And here's the thing that I want you to realize. Jesus loved you enough that he came and would have came just for you exactly where you are so that he can make you right with him. Really let that, that in. If you were the only person in the world with sin, God would have still sent Jesus on your behalf. So you can say, well, I'm not perfect. Yeah, none of us are. That should be a reassuring statement. None of us are perfect. But God wants to make us perfect. And that there's going to be a day when we're in heaven and there's no more pain and no more tears and no more fear and no more pain where all of a sudden we are made perfect and we are in the presence of God for eternity. And the goal is to bring as many people with us as possible. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what we want to preach to anyone and everyone that we come in contact with. The second idea that came from uh, chapter 1 of Galatians is this, is that Paul received this gospel from God. This is one of those things that I love, that when we think about Paul, Paul would have been definitely in the running for being very high up on the list of Pharisee. Uh, if he had continued on his path, he would have likely had the first five books, if not more, of the Old Testament, the Torah for him, memorized. Think about that for a moment. How many of you can say, I have five verses memorized, let alone the first five books of the Bible memorized? If anyone knew the law, Paul knew the law. And he had that ability to say, you know what, I'm going after Christians because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus isn't the Messiah because of reasons one, two, three, X, Y, Z. But then all of a sudden, God gives him an encounter with Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, he experiences Jesus. He's struck with blindness. You can read through that whole account in the, the book of Acts. But here's the thing. He met Jesus face to face in an incredible moment where now all of a sudden he experiences Jesus, and now he starts understanding who God authentically really is from God directly. He doesn't go and teach uh, or learn from this teacher or learn from that teacher. When we look at the, the disciples that become the apostles, the thing that sets them apart, the reason why they're even allowed to write books of the, the New Testament is this, is because they either learn directly from Jesus or they learn from someone who learned directly from Jesus. Paul had that experience of learning directly from Jesus because he had this moment. He spends years then diving into everything that God has to say. And he comes from a spot in Galatians as he's opening this letter saying, you know what? If there is anybody who knows anything, it should be me. But let me tell you something. I know nothing because this is what happened. God had to give me a unique experience. I haven't learned this from anyone else. This is directly from God, and I come to you humbly. Let me just shared this thought. This is something that I, I always like cautioning people with, especially if anyone ever tells me, well, I have a prophetic leaning. When you make a statement that says, thus saith the Lord, you better feel confident that that's coming from the Lord and not coming from you. There's moments, and I haven't had a lot where I feel like God is telling me that directly. I try to my best of my ability approaching that person, that situation as humbly as possible. Because if I'm speaking on behalf of God, I don't want to be wrong. And I want to be clear of like, hey, I really feel like God's saying this, but I need you to listen to what God's saying to you. I'm, I'm hopefully coming here to confirm what you've heard, but you need to hear this. 
when you come with, thus saith the Lord, and you come with pride, that's a very dangerous spot to be. You want to be able to come boldly, but you want to be able to come humbly as well. And so Paul is really setting that up here is, hey, this is what my, my background is. I had great moments. I was educated. I knew all this stuff, but then God wrecked me, and then God turned my life around. So here's what I'm going to have to say to you. I, I hope you're ready to receive it. So as we transition into chapter 2, we know that there's only one gospel. We get that gospel from God and not from man. And that if you hear a gospel from someone else, you need to run and you need to avoid it. That leads us to chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in the spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might be, uh, bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we see this, that now all of a sudden, it brings us to this point of chapter 2 of the apostles approved of Paul's message. Paul basically goes with Barnabas and Titus and says, hey, this is what God gave to me. This is what we've been preaching. We've been preaching to the Gentiles. Are we approved to do what we're doing? And so he comes to submit himself uh, to the, these individuals and says, would you, would you agree that what we're preaching is right? When you see Cephas, by the way, that's Aramaic for Peter. And so they present this message, and the message is approved. That they're said, yes, this is good. What you're doing is right. You can go ahead and preach to the Gentiles. Now, here's one of the things that's, that's interesting when you pull from this. The top apostles are saying to Paul, yes, what you're doing is right. Go ahead and preach to the Gentiles. You don't got to change a thing. Just go share the word of God. Go share the gospel message. What you're, the gospel you're sharing is the right gospel. But here's the catch. You have these Jewish Christians who are saying, well, that's fine. The Gentiles can join the faith. They can follow along. They can listen. They can agree. They can participate. But they got to meet all these rules. They have to be this. They have to be that. Here's the problem with that, is that when Paul and Titus and Barnabas go before them, Titus has a little bit of a problem. He's a Greek. He's not a Jew. So Titus would not have had to have been circumcised to that point. And they didn't tell him, you got to go do this in order to preach the gospel. So if he stands before this, this council of the top believers, the leaders in the faith in that moment, and they don't require him to go and get circumcised, then why should that requirement be on any of the Gentile believers? Notice what they tell them to do. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
It was go and take care of people, love people, share the truth, share the good news, watch people's lives get changed, and take care of them. That's all that's asked of them. That's all that's required of them. And in this moment, you see uh, Peter, who's making this comment of just like, go tell people about Jesus. And you have all these other Jewish believers that are trying to cause issues and saying, well, no, but you actually have to follow the way that I want you to follow. You need to do what I want you to do. No, you don't. No, you don't. You just have to follow Jesus. Follow the gospel. Follow the, the, the law that is put out there that we don't need to do ceremonial anymore. We don't need to follow the cultural laws. We just have to follow the moral laws. We just do what is God calls good and avoid what God calls evil. Good and evil doesn't go away because of Jesus being on the cross. Jesus just opens our eyes to it and allows us to be able to fulfill it. And when we do something that's wrong, we're able to ask for forgiveness. But that leads us now into verses 11 through 14 where it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's your, your next point in this chapter. Don't be a hypocrite. It's so easy to say, so hard to live out at times. Don't be a hypocrite. When we say don't be a hypocrite, what, here's the thing. When we look at people that complain about the church today, those that we would say are lost, there are some people that would say that they're lost or that they've walked away from their faith or that they're deconstructing their faith because of things that they've seen that's happened inside of the church, when in reality it's just imperfect people that are saying, well, do this, but I'm not going to do it myself. That we need to be the best examples of I'm trying to grow in my faith and I acknowledge that I'm not there. The more that we are comfortable with making that sort of a statement of I'm following after God, I'm closer to, to looking like Jesus today than I was yesterday, but I still make mistakes. The more comfortable that we get with making that statement and owning up to our failures and allowing our pride to die, the more that we're going to start looking like Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, and we're going to see less hypocrisy within the church. Peter, who says, yeah, go for it, do this, go and tell the Gentiles. He then comes and visits, and then he's, part, he's doing exactly what he told Paul to do, but then all of a sudden the people that he's trying to impress, the people that view him a particular way, as soon as they show up, he changes how he acts, and everybody sees it. Now, if we go back and we just read Galatians 1.10 again, it said, "For Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you are more worried about trying to please man, you're not serving Christ. You're serving yourself. You're serving your identity. You're serving your pride. You're serving your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions. You have to be willing to allow all that to die so that you're able to do what Jesus Christ calls you to do. That's the purpose of this. When we say don't be a hypocrite, it's simply because this world, this, uh, our country especially, looks at the church and says, well, that's hypocritical and that's hypocritical and this, and we pick things apart. But before you say, yeah, the world needs to stop doing that, no, we need to stop being hypocritical and we need to stop picking other people apart and just share the truth and love. The problem is we're not willing to share our mistakes we're not willing to share our testimonies of where we missed it and how God saved us. And if we hold those things back, here's the problem. 
people only see what we're trying to put out there of, well, we have it all together. Everything's perfect. There's not a problem. And they don't see our weakness. But where is God found to be strong in our weakness? Broken vessel. Let's start owning the fact that we're broken vessels instead of trying to own the fact that we have it all together. If we started putting pride in the fact that we are broken vessels that are still being used by God, imagine how much more powerful our testimonies could be. Imagine how much more the church could actually change the world. But instead, we're trying to do things our own way. And part of that is because we're still, even though we believe it, even though we know it, even though we teach it, hear it preach, we are still trying to be justified by our works and not our faith. At the end of the day, we need to be justified by our faith not our works. Galatians 2, 15 through 21 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So over and over again, if we're trying to say, well, I'm made right because of the things I do because I serve so much or I gave so much or I uh, told so many people about Jesus, I preached so much then we miss the point because if we could earn our salvation, then Christ died for nothing. I don't want Christ to have died for nothing because I'm not good enough on my own. I'm a flawed, imperfect human being that needed to be saved by grace. So are you. And the more we can embrace that and say, this is who I was, but this is who I am, and this is what God's making me into, this is how God's growing me and moving me in a particular direction, the more that we can embrace that fact, the more people we're going to see say, you know what, I can do that too. But when we sit up on an ivory tower and say, you need to get your life together before you can enter into the church, no, that, it doesn't work that way. Sometimes it's messy before all of a sudden you see breakthrough happen. Just all of a sudden this, this picture just came to my mind. The other day, Lydia and Quinn were working on these two um, archaeology uh, type of toys where they're digging in this clay-like dirt that's hardened, and they're looking for all these stones that are all throughout the mix of it. And they worked really hard with these little tools, like digging and breaking rocks out. And, of course, as you can kind of imagine, it, it became a mess very quickly. Then they got smart. They realized that if you got this clay and this dirt wet, that it broke apart easier. And it sped up the process. And so they got their stones out. And all of a sudden, they, like, I see this like, handful of these really cool gems that they found in here. And then I went into the bathroom, and I saw what happened in the bathroom, and the bathroom sink, and how the bathroom sink for about 24 hours was coated in this like, clay, and it was in the drain, and all this work that needed to be done to, to clean it up. There was a mess in order to find the jewels in, in the middle. And when we look at other people, we, want the, we just want to snap our finger, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, you're a jewel now. Everything's perfect. Your entire past has fallen away, and I didn't have to see any of it fallen away. 
You just went from being a mess to perfect in the snap of a finger. How many of you know that your life was not that? You went through a messy period where someone had to walk through that process with you. Some of you are like, you know what? I'm, I'm an organized person, so at least I contained my mess where I was supposed to. And it might have taken a little bit, but I got it all done. Quinn, her mess got all over the place. I found it for days afterwards in, the, in that moment. And you might relate to that with your spiritual life and say, you know what? Like, my mess is all over the place. That I had, I had a lot that I had to clean up. Jesus is there to help you clean it up. The church is there to help you clean it up. And when you think of people in your life that I love them and I want them to be in heaven one day, but it's going to be a messy process. Dive into that messy process. There is no better process than see someone who is messy, who is messed up, all of a sudden turn around and start glorifying God. It's worth it each and every time for you to put yourself out there and to help that process. Do not give up on that person. Do not walk up to him and say, you know what, if you can't do these seven different things by tomorrow, you're out. God didn't do that to you. Paul in this moment is telling the, the Gentiles, hey, you don't have to have it perfect. You don't have to follow all these cultural laws. They're bringing a fake gospel to you. This is what you need to do. God told me, the apostles told me, this is all you have to do. Now, here's one of the things I want you to realize. Even when you look at this whole process, the Jewish believers, they have this kind of longing um, struggle that for us that enter the midst as Gentile believers, we walk into like, oh, we're in grace. Oh, Jesus went to the cross for me. Yes, I'm going to believe Jesus because we recognize him as the Messiah. The Jewish believers at this time had been waiting for a Messiah to come, and they wanted things to be a particular way. Even the ones that believed in Jesus were waiting for things to be a particular way. There's a reason why when we look at the end of Revelation, we're in this, this church period where it's grace and everything's good, and it's easy to believe in the process. When we get to the book of Revelation, here's what ends up happening. It's in order to bring the Jewish believers or the Jewish people back into the family. The, graft, the Gentiles were grafted back into the family of God because of Jesus dying on the cross. The Jewish uh, individuals are going to be brought back in because it's going to mirror what they've already experienced. What's one of the most popular, well-known, important holidays for the Jewish people? Passover. Passover led them out of Egypt and led them to every other holiday, every other law that they have was birthed out of Passover. Jesus was the Passover lamb. They're going to realize when all of a sudden you start seeing things that look like the plagues that happened that brought them out of Egypt. Those are going to happen again so they can catch their attention so they can say, oh, you know what? God's up to something. God's doing something here. I better pay attention. Just like the Jewish people during that moment that if they don't do the right things, if they don't do what God's calling them to do, they're going to have their firstborn die as well. That they sacrifice the lamb, they paint their doorposts with the blood so that the angel of death would pass over their house. The same thing is going to be coming into play with the book of Revelation. They might not catch it until it's that moment, but there's an opportunity for them. But for us as Gentiles, here's our goal, here's our mission, to love each and every person that comes in our path and share the truth with them. Over and over and over again, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until they either accept Jesus or Jesus calls us home. 